And uh, the rest of us, we have a time specially designed for you too, which you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter... No, that wouldn't work. How about Isaiah chapter 6? How long have I begun sermons with Hebrews? Oh my. Isaiah 6, and we'll read the first eight verses together. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Father, the awesome vision that's given to us from your word is overwhelming. We can't even imagine what it was like for Isaiah in that moment to be completely undone. We've gathered here to worship you, and Father, by faith we recognize that you are here just as truly as you were with Isaiah in that moment. Will you give to us a vision of your holiness? Will you grant us an understanding of the significance of this moment that we are here with you and your holy angels? We ask for our children. Lord, would you reach them with the gospel as they hear it this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. That offertory, isn't that a wonderful, just just incredible song. Um, Robin and I have been fans of Todd Agnew for a number of years. Um, what, one of the reasons is, is he's the, the rare male artist who has a deep voice, right? Usually your, your Christian musicians, the, the, the guy's got uh, a, a, deep, uh, a higher voice, but, his is, but, but the content of his lyrics is just astounding. As, as he takes us into that moment and using the power of music to help us experience the significance of this event in, in Isaiah's life in which he sees the holy God and is called to go out with the message of salvation. We sense something of the impact that this vision had 
on Isaiah, even as we, we hear this song, right? We, we begin to, to glimpse a little bit about what that was. We can be moved by the idea of God's holiness. And I'm going to read a, a, a couple different passages that talk about the holiness of God as, as theologians try to help us understand the holiness of God. And I, and I, I, I want us to... Well, let's just, let's just think about them. The first one I, I found online um, from a, a site called gotquestions.com. I guess the individual who writes this is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and this is what he had to say about the holiness of God. The holiness of God refers to the unparalleled majesty of his incomparable being and his blameless, faultless, unblemished moral purity. And we can read that and say, wow, right? That's That's good. I'm not completely sure what it means, but it's good, right? And, and, and it sounds, it, lots of superlatives. I, I appreciate that. Um, then uh, Wilhelmus Brackel, who is a Dutch theologian, I've, I've read him recently, has this to say in his book, The Christian's Reasonable Service, which is a four-volume systematic theology, which, by the way, I would say I strongly recommend. Usually you think of reading a systematic theology and you start yawning before you finish saying systematic, right? But this is one that is incredibly warm, very devotional in the way that Brackle uh, deals with uh, theology uh, in general. And he says that holiness is the pure essence of the character of God. Consequently, it relates to the brightness of all his perfections, for which reason he is called a light, and in him is no darkness at all. Quoting from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And again, a nice description of holiness. But as I, as I read that, the one thing I'm quite certain of is Isaiah was not impacted by a theologian's description of holiness, was he? There's something entirely different that happened in Isaiah's life than reading a description of God's holiness. It's like describing a sunset. Okay? You could do that. And everybody will go, oh, that's really nice. That's really sounds really pretty, right? But when you sit and you see the sunset, it's entirely different, isn't it? The experience of it is what moves you to a greater place. Isaiah's life was changed by a vision of God's holiness. The entire trajectory of his, his career as a prophet, everything changed at this moment. Let's look closely at this moment, and I hope each of us will pray that God will move us by his holiness. And that movement I see in, in three ways. First of all, as his holiness moves us, I think it will be drawn to worship. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. 
while the temple was filling with smoke. I just want to say one of the things that, that has always struck me about this passage is the idea that the foundation of the thresholds trembled. And I, primarily what I remember about that and what strikes me is, uh, in, I think it was in 1970, uh, my family was living in uh, Southern California and there was a, a strong earthquake that hit right where we were living. And uh, I remember, I, I was very young, I got up and I'm, I'm, I'm eating my Rice Krispies. I remember I was eating Rice Krispies because my first thought was I just poured the milk on and I'm listening for the snap, crackle, pop and the whole building started to shake. And I kid you not, as a little five, six-year-old, this is what I'm concerned about is like, holy Moses, these are going crazy. And then I saw my mom and my stepdad and my brothers and they're saying, come over here. And they quickly gathered everybody in the threshold of the doorway because they said, this is the strongest place for us to be. This is the safest place to be. And the threshold of the temple was shaken to its core at the voice of the angel calling out, holy, holy, holy. And to me, that's just incredibly moving to recognize just, just what was going on in this moment. As I think about worship, I think about when you try to describe to someone how to worship, and we can do that, right? We can technically walk through, here's how you worship. And people could technically do it right and still not worship God, right? It's kind of like telling someone how to hug, right? You could tell them, you know, you put out your arms and, and, you, bring the, and you apply pressure and, and maybe, you know, if you're really happy, you pat them, right? And so we give all that technical and someone could do it and not receive or express any affection at all, correct? But when they see the beloved and they run together with their arms outstretched and they grab them and they hold them, that is hugging. And it's exactly like that. We can describe worship, but to come into the presence of God, that is the life-changing worship that we can experience. Isaiah sees God's holiness, and he worships. Let's Let's look at that worship for a moment and, and look at the, the way that this worship affects him. And, and first of all, what it does is, is you are exposed by truth as you come in to worship the holy God. Holy. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, actually begins to define holiness. It takes him several chapters, but eventually he does get around to it. And he has this to say, and, and it's very helpful to begin to, to think through what holy means, okay? It's, it's essential that we, we understand this. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. Now, I want us to, to hold on to that idea of holiness, that it's, it's to be different. And, and we think about that, and, and we, we see things that are different, but they're, they're just kind of different. God is different entirely from who we are. He's unlike anything in the created world. As a matter of fact, to consider him as, as the absolute standard 
of goodness. So everything that's good is good in, it, in, in, in a way is it, it, it leans toward who he is as the standard of goodness. To me, it's, it's like the, the, the level or the, the bubble stick that you use that you're able to tell if something is exactly horizontal or not, and you're, you're able to, to utilize this tool, and because of the way gravity works, it keeps the water at, at always coming directly down, right? We technically in to the, to the center of the earth, but, but regardless, that's, that's what's always happening. And, and so we have that standard, and when something isn't level, it's just, it's, it's off, right? And the bubble stick is just off, and we're able to recognize that. Well, when we understand is God is that standard, and when we come into his presence, what we begin to experience is that, that we, we don't fit, right? Now, we're, we're very different people who are here, right? Lots of different ages, lots of different uh, uh, shapes, sizes, all of that, and lots of different backgrounds and stuff, and yet we're all kind of the same, and we feel comfortable being around those who are like us, right? I've experienced uh, uh, preaching at a, a prison in Malawi, Africa. I experienced being in a place where folks around me are not like me, right? I, I, I'm one of the only ones that had shoes on, one of the things. Um, I also, I wanted to play basketball because I was huge there. <laughs> Everyone was way shorter. Um, oh yeah, and I was white. All these differences, and you become aware of it, and it makes you feel a little self, I don't know, focused, but, but not, not necessarily comfortable. But when we come into the presence of God and we recognize that He is the standard, the one thing we become very much aware of is we don't fit in. He's not like us. He's not like us at all. He's, he's so holy. And that's what Isaiah is coming face to face with, is that he is so different. We become aware of our inadequacies because as we see him, the standard, we become aware that we don't match. We become aware of what is truth. He is God. And we are creatures. And that truth exposes us for who we are. Even if we were not sinful, we would still have that same experience because the angels are not sinful. And yet they have to cover their eyes and they have to cover their feet because they recognize we don't belong here. Humans call us the holy angels, but in presence of holy God, they're out of place. And they recognize that, and so they cover their eyes and their feet, recognizing that they don't fit. That truth exposes us as created and dependent beings. And it shows us that we're much less than we think of ourselves. And much, much more. Because in that place we also begin to see, but we're in His image. And He loves us. 
And so it's a very disturbing place to find ourselves, to be exposed by truth, but then also to be crowded by his glory. There's a word that's used uh, three different times in this passage. It's uh, used as filling or filled or full. It's used in this passage over and over, and it's, and it's a word that, uh, it's, it's the same word in, in each time. And this idea of being full of his glory, I, I want us to think about for a moment. When I was a kid, um, I remember we, we'd have like Christmas parties, and I remember when I was asked to, uh, would you fill Uncle Daryl's glass with water? Was a kid, what that meant to me, the operative word was not water, it was fill. And putting it, you know, like a half inch from the top is not full, that's just giving him a little bit of water. Filled meant to that limit, right? And I know it, it seems ridiculous now, but, but that's the way that I thought, and I wasn't trying to be cute, I was actually thinking I was following the rule that was given to me that it needed to be filled. And, and that's something of the picture of what this word means when we see that the earth is full of his glory. And the word glory is the Hebrew word kabod, which means heavy, to be weighty, to have significance and substance. And as we think about that, the earth is full of his glory, that his glory is driving out everything else. Hopefully the voice makes it through. To think of the temple and the train of his robe, which is his glory, presses into every corner of the temple, pushing out everything that is not the glory of God, that God's glory is upon this earth, and it's pushing out everything that is not his glory. Habakkuk 2.14 tells us about this, that one day that the earth will be filled, the same word, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it helps me to think about the ocean. Someone described this one time. He said, what we don't think about is the fact that, that we live kind of in an ocean of air. Because we think of the air as, we don't see it, and so we don't think about it as substantive, but it is substantive. There, there, is, there is something that is the air that is around us, and that's what we get with our barometric pressure, is how much air is above us. We think of it more when we think about going into the bottom of the ocean, right? Because water has more weight, and it can't be compressed. God's glory has weight, and it can't be compressed. And the whole earth is full of that glory. And it's just all around us, driving out everything which is not reflecting the greatness of who God is. To stand in worship, aware of His holiness, His glory presses on us like an ocean on the seafloor. Be still. and Focus on God and experience worship 
and what this worship means to be in his presence of his holiness, drawn to worship, exposed by the truth, and crowded by his glory. And then we'll be compelled to confession. Verses 5 through 7. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah is the greatest of the prophets. When you look at the Old Testament, you look at all the prophets, the minor prophets, major prophets, it doesn't matter. The greatest of the prophets, if you will, is Isaiah. Of all the prophetic writings and all of the prophetic books, Isaiah is the great. Much like if we're saying, what's the, the, the greatest poets? Right? We're going to talk about Shakespeare, we're going to talk about Homer, and these, these, these epic poems that were written by these individuals. We see that as, as the greatest everybody else. It's like really nice, really good. But Shakespeare, Homer, they're the epitome, right? Isaiah is that. And so his writings are like that. And it is this man, this, this greatest of the prophets, who says, I am ruined when he comes into the presence of the holy God. I'm ruined. And the word ruin means undone. It means to cease, to cut off, to be destroyed, to perish. The theological word book of the Old Testament says this about the word. It says that the verb means to come to an end, but it is always a violent end that is indicated. And that's what Isaiah is saying about himself as he comes to recognize this moment of where he is. He's just completely undone. He's ruined at that moment, and he has to confess. And so he confesses. It takes him to that place where he has to align himself with God. I, I love the, the New Testament word for confess, hamalageo. Hamalageo is made up of, of two words. Hama, uh, homo is what we would, we would speak of, which means the same. And legeo is word or thought. And the idea of confession, uh, some would say, is to agree with God. That is to say that we have the same thought about our sin that God has. And that's what it is to confess our sin to God is we are, we are agreeing with God about the reality of our sin. So that means we've got to be honest about our failures. To be honest about our failures, which is what he does in, in verse 5. Um, I, I like the way uh, Brendan Manning puts it in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Um, he has this to say about our, our experiences, which is common. He says that Sunday worship, as in every dimension of our existence, many of us pretend to believe we are sinners. Right? You, you, you get that? I pretend to believe I'm a sinner. I'll say, oh, I'm a sinner, but I don't really think I really sin. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner like I'm a human. It's just human nature, but it's not like I actually do horrible stuff, right? And, and so we pretend to believe that we're sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe we've been forgiven. As a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. I think he's really addressed something that's true, is that sometimes our confession is, is pretending. It's not being honest about what our sin is. Notice, notice what Isaiah says. 
He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Do you see what he didn't say? He didn't say, all I ever do is wicked. I don't have any righteous thoughts ever. I don't do anything good at any point. I'm always only doing the rotten, horrible stuff, right? He doesn't say that. He says, what's the reality in his life? He recognizes immediately as he's exposed by the truth, as he's standing before this holy God, and he's drawn immediately, compelled to confession. He says, the issue that I know right now is that my lips are not clean. Now, maybe that that was important to him because he was a prophet and he needed to have clean lips and he recognized his failure and his inadequacy to even fulfill the, the, the office which he'd been appointed to by God. But regardless, this is the sin that was hitting him the most and what he wanted to confess to God immediately at that moment is this is what's true in my life. He doesn't say I'm a liar. He doesn't say I'm a cheat. He says, I've got unclean lips. This is my sin. He's honest about what his sin is. I think that calls each of us to, to look at where do I fail? Specifically, and again, I'm much more comfortable calling myself a sinner than admitting that I've sinned. So let's move to the uncomfortable spot. How's that? Where have I sinned? What is my failure? Be specific. I don't expect you to stand up right now, but, but jot that down and talk to God about that. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, that's that word homologeo, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Two things that he's saying that he does. Those same two things happen in Isaiah's life, and we're going to look at that in just a moment as we begin to, to move forward. So I want to confess my sin, knowing that God is, is faithful and righteous. And then I need to be cleansed by Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, number one, and your sin is forgiven, number two. The two things that happen to us. Notice, first of all, that it's a burning coal. And it's a burning coal, and where is it, where is it taken from? From the altar, which is the place of sacrifice. He takes it from the burning sacrifice, and he applies it to his lips. Jesus is our sacrifice, is he not? That's the place where our forgiveness is found. And he touches his lips and he says, your iniquity is taken away. Iniquity taken away speaks of repentance. In 1 John 1, 9, it talks about, and you are cleansed from your unrighteousness. Cleansing is the same as repentance. Repentance is a matter of separating ourselves from our sin, right? Forgiveness doesn't require that. Repentance does. If I'm going to repent, I have to no longer be doing that sin. And he's talking about with this happening, with this confession, he's taken that sin away. He's repented. He's given him the power that he might not live continually as a man of unclean lips. He may still live among a people of unclean lips, but he doesn't have to be that. He's now been set free by that coal from the altar. But not just that, it's also, and you're forgiven. 
in addition. Both elements are present. He's also forgiven completely of his sins. You see, as we come and confess our sins, being honest about our failures, we can be cleansed by Jesus. You can be forgiven. Come to Jesus today, right now. If you've never come to him and said, Lord, I have sinned against you, do so at this moment and receive the forgiveness which comes from the altar, which we call the cross, where Jesus died for those sins and he offers you cleansing and forgiveness both. And you can find that. Trust him today. The first way in which God's holiness moves me is I'm drawn to worship. The second is that I'm compelled to confession. And finally, that you're called to mission. Called to mission. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Isn't that interesting? God says, whom shall I send? I'd have said, uh, Jesus? How about those seraphim? I mean, they're flying. I mean, they can get around pretty good, right? Right? They got a great message. I might also say, why do you need to send anyone? Why don't you just handle it? Right? I mean, you're God. You're everywhere. You're all-powerful. Why don't you handle it? God, for some reason, likes to use people. Right? You go back to, to Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus, and when, when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? He, he says to the people, uh, move the stone. How many of you would have blown up the stone? Right? I mean, the effect alone would have been awesome, Right? Right, I don't need anybody to move that stone. I'm going to, you know, a little Jedi, lift it up and move it over here, and, and we're going to just call him out. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus told the people, move the stone. You know why? Because they could. I'd also raised him in glorious clothes, but he came out in grave clothes, and they said, take those grave clothes off him and give him something else. Why did he do that? Because people can do that. And God likes to use people. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, what, is, what does God tell Adam and Eve, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He tells them to fill the earth. Lord, is it any harder for you to make a couple billion people than it is for you to make a person? But he didn't want that to happen. He wanted to use Adam and Eve. And as Jesus is getting ready to go up into heaven... He calls his disciples together and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew 28, 19, 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's going to be with them, but he still asks them to do it. God has this way of asking people to do his mission. He likes to use us. And God has a message. He 
He's got a message that He wants us to proclaim. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, we read something different than chapter 11, verse 14. Chapter 10, 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are feet of those who bring good news of good things. Notice it says in verse 14, How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? We become the very voice of God as we take the message of the gospel out to the world around us. The book of Romans is all about the gospel. In chapter 1 he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is that power, and he's given that power to us, and he's called on us to go and to tell the world that they might hear the very voice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 this incredible promise. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The message of this gospel is taken out by you and I, by our life and by our words, by the life that we live as we demonstrate that we are His followers by our love for one another and by our love for the world around us, we declare the gospel. As we live our life and we show that we believe that we are forgiven, not that we are perfect, so that we confess our sins regularly and we, we live as forgiven men, women, and children, we show the gospel and as we tell people this is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. That message we can then take to the world around us waiting for Jesus to bring salvation. God has a message and we need to be available. Isaiah says, here am I. Here am I. In order to say that, he had to be close enough to God to hear. Right? He heard God say, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? He was close to God. Be close to God so that you hear his call. Sometimes that call comes in an individual situation where you're with someone and you, you recognize that the Spirit is prompting you, tell them about me. Right? Be listening, be attentive, be close to hear the call. And grow in faith so that you'll be able to respond to that call. Continually growing in faith, that is your reliance upon God. And being available also means saying, send me. How many of you were at the Share Your Faith conference we had a few weeks ago? That's great to see a number of you out there. Now, in addition to that, how many of you have had training in evangelism explosion before that? Yep, even more, right? Yep. Uh, Matt, that's how you get Presbyterians to raise your hand. I'm just saying. Anyway, we were, we were talking about that earlier. Um, that was not the point. But anyway, um, I, I, I want us to recognize that, that the Share Your Faith Conference, what that was about, evangelism explosion, what that's about, what we're, we're trying to, to begin to build a, a visitation ministry to where we're going out and we're, we're talking to people who've come to, to 
Providence. If they, if they want to visit, we want to come talk to them and let them know about Providence. And if they want, we're going to talk to them about Jesus. That's all. We just want to share our faith. This is what we believe. That's what Providence is about. It's about Jesus. And so we want to tell people about that, to be able to find a way to communicate with our neighbors What's one of the ways in which we're going to see every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ? By engaging in relationships with people who are new to us, by taking the time to engage them. And we build that relationship. And then it's not weird that I talk to him about Jesus because he's everything in my life. I mean, if you meet me, it's not very long before you know I'm married to Robin and she's awesome, right? Because I am and she is, right? Well, the same is true. It's not going to be very long before I'm going to tell you that I love Jesus and he's my savior. Why? Because he is and I am, right? And, and so we begin to know that relationship is there. Well, I just want to talk about Jesus as naturally and normally as I would talk about my wife or the Denver Broncos who stink, but I love them. <laughs> but it's a part of, of, of who I am. Yeah, Chris is like, amen on both. It's, it's, it's who we are and sharing my faith is just being that. So when God says, whom shall I send? We say, send me. I'm ready. I'm willing. You put me in this spot for this reason. Every Sunday we gather together. And we see our friends. I love that Providence has a, a, a full half hour um, of, of time where we've got uh, just coffee and chatting, Right? We're just getting together and we're just enjoying each Oh, and donuts. I'm sorry, I left out the most important part. Um, and, and, and we just enjoy that time together and, and we spend time with each other and, and we get to know each other. I, I love to watch as, and see people praying together and it's a great thing and we look around and we see people we know, people that we love. This is a great place to be. We, we're able to pray together. We're able to sing together. We're able to um, listen to brilliant sermons on a regular basis. Okay, maybe occasionally. <laughs> we meditate on important thoughts about God, right? Every Sunday, it's wonderful. It's a good thing. And yet, I think sometimes we're not aware of the unseen reality of our worship service. We don't see the angels that are all around us, covering their eyes, covering their feet. Sometimes they peek through their eyes because they're astounded at the salvation you've received. They're like, that is so cool. Not like, how could he save that one? But at the idea that God can save us, they're just, they're looking with awe and they're praising God. We don't see that we are seated among the saints of God, among His holy ones. For each person here who's trusting in Jesus Christ has been forgiven all of their sins, and God Almighty, with the full power of divine fiat, has said of each person, you are righteous. Yeah, we don't notice that, right? But that's reality because God isn't fooling himself. He's not the one who's missing it. We are. This is what we're experiencing. Oh, 
And the God who is holy, holy, holy is here in our midst. Or should I say, we're in his midst. This is the reality. My prayer is that God will help each of us to recognize that reality each time we meet with God. And that we will each be moved by His holiness that will draw us to worship, compel us to confession, and send us on mission. Let's pray. Oh, holy, holy, holy God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the reality of your presence. Grant that we may truly be drawn to worship, compelled to confession, and sent to mission. Lord, I pray that your holiness will move us. It will change our lives, just as it changed Isaiah. And that you'll do this for the praise and glory of Jesus. Amen.